Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Rita O'Neill, a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell. Among other things in my practice, I help advise private equity firms. The Department of Justice made news in October 2022 by announcing the resignations from the board of five companies in response to DOJ concerns about potentially illegal interlocking directorates. One of the situations involved with the DOJ described as a, quote, investment firm that the DOJ concluded was serving on the boards of two competitors through its representatives. In its press release announcing the resignations, the DOJ said that the resignations reflected the DOJ's efforts to reinvigorate enforcement and deter violations of Section 8 of the Clayton Act. This podcast will provide an overview of Section 8, focusing in particular on issues that private equity firms may want to consider in view of the DOJ's focus on the issue. We'll be conducting this podcast as a Q&A with my partner, Joe Metellus, who is a partner in SNC's antitrust group. Joe, can you start off by telling us what kinds of interlocks Section 8 addresses and why these are an antitrust concern? Hi, Rita. Nice to be talking with you today. An interlock under Section 8 occurs when a person serves as a director or board-appointed officer of two competing corporations. When explaining why this is an antitrust concern at all, I like to use the example of Coke and Pepsi. If the same person were on the boards of both companies, there would be an antitrust concern about potentially coordinating marketplace behavior through the common director, as well as a concern about the sharing of competitively sensitive information. In Section 8, Congress disregarded the chance that a director could navigate those potential conflicts of interest as a corporate governance matter, and instead simply made those kinds of direct horizontal interlocks illegal. Joe, before you go on, you use the term horizontal. What does that mean in this context? So Section 8 focuses on corporations that compete against one another. We'll discuss some of the de minimis exceptions to the statute later, but some involve the sales of one corporation that are sold, quote, in competition with the other. And so even though there is some scholarly literature that addresses potential harms from interlocks involving companies at different levels of the same chain of supply, it is well established that Section 8 only applies to horizontal overlaps meaning interlocks involving companies that compete at the same level of a chain of supply. Or to go back to Coke and Pepsi, an interlock between one of them and a marketing agency would not create a Section 8 issue, even though marketing is an important part of the business of both Coke and Pepsi. Sometimes there can be complicated questions about whether two corporations are, in fact, competitors, depending on the circumstances. You've used the phrase corporation a few times. What is the significance of that word? Section 8 prohibits interlocks between, quote, corporations. There is no case law directly addressing whether the word should be construed to cover other kinds of entities, including, for instance, a limited liability company. The Department of Justice itself has previously noted the lack of clear guidance on this topic. So this, too, is an area in which there can be complicated questions about the application of Section 8. 
For PE firms in particular, these can be complicated questions because many operate through alternative entities. Since the precise words used in the Clayton Act can be highly relevant to the application of Section 8 to PE fund investments, I have one more definitional question for you. You've said that Section 8 applies to interlocks involving a, quote, person. What does that word mean under the Clayton Act? The word person is defined in the Clayton Act, quote, to include corporations or associations existing under or authorized by the laws of either the United States the laws of any of the territories, the laws of any state, or the laws of any foreign country. In view of that broad definition, the Department of Justice has taken the position that an entity can serve on a board through a representative. The Federal Trade Commission and other private plaintiffs have taken similarly broad views too. The few courts that have discussed the issue at any length have agreed to various degrees, even though it is somewhat counterintuitive to think about an entity serving on the board of directors as opposed to a natural person. As you noted at the outset, one of the situations involved in the DOJ's recent press release concerned what DOJ called an investment firm, one of whose managing partners was on the board of one competitor and one of whose, quote, senior operating partners was on the board of a second competitor. What is particularly interesting about that situation is that according to the investment firm's website, the senior operating partner was not an employee of the investment firm. Yet the DOJ still deemed the person to be a representative of the investment firm for purposes of section eight. So this too is an area where judgment calls are sometimes involved in assessing whether someone might be or might not be deemed to be a representative for purposes of section eight. Let me switch things up and ask you a question. What are some of the reasons that PE firms might seek board representation? And are there ways to accomplish those goals other than through board membership? Generally, a private equity fund will negotiate board representation in connection with an investment into a company so that it can monitor its investment. This theoretically could be accomplished through the use of board observers instead of directors. And if a PE fund is concerned with downside protection for its investment or having certain negative control rights, those often can be accomplished with shareholder vetoes or shareholder approval rights. Many times, however, the private equity fund appointed director or directors may have operational or industry or other expertise that makes the director a valuable addition to the board. So often a directorship, that is a voice or seat at the table, can be both a benefit to the PE fund and a benefit to the board and the company. And lastly, in certain circumstances, PE directors may remain on the board as they sell down control, such as when a PE fund IPOs a portfolio company which can provide helpful continuity in a company's transition to the public markets. But pausing for a moment on board observers, do those present the same concerns under Section 8? No, those positions are not officers or directors, and thus they do not fall within Section 8's ambit. There may be other antitrust laws that potentially come into play because competitors generally should not, for instance, coordinate marketplace conduct through a board observer, but those restrictions fall under other parts of the antitrust laws. One more question for you, Rita. 
when seeking new board members, how is prior experience as a board member viewed? Having a board member with prior board experience is very valuable to a company and can help the company be more competitive. So there are pro-competitive advantages to having directors with experience such that the DOJ's possession, if taken too aggressively, could have the opposite effect and chill competition. So that leads us to the issue of what kinds of corporations a person can sit on at the same time. You've mentioned de minimis exceptions a few times. Let's talk about those. Here's an example I like to use to explain why Section 8 has exceptions. Suppose two businesses have factories located next to each other. One builds jet engines and the other makes teddy bears. So they are not competitors in their main businesses. But both also have coffee shops in their lobbies. Some coffee drinkers may be choosing between which coffee shop to go to in the morning. So to some degree, the two corporations are competitors. But the revenues associated with that competition are small. So it is unlikely that any competitively sensitive information about the coffee business will go to the board. Congress recognized that this kind of interlock was unlikely to harm competition when amending the Clayton Act in 1990 to address the difficulty in obtaining qualified outside directors. In addition to exceptions for companies with modest nominal amounts of revenue and competing sales, there are also exceptions dealing with interlocks where the revenues associated with any competing businesses are modest relative to total sales. In particular, an exception applies when the competing revenues are less than 4% of each interlocked corporation's total revenues or less than 2% of one of the interlocked corporation's total revenues. The theory behind those exceptions is that the competing business is unlikely to come to the attention of the board of one or both of the interlocked companies. As I previewed earlier, there can be difficult interpretive issues about how to apply these thresholds, and in particular, assessing which portion of a corporation's sales are associated with competition with another firm and how to assess the sales of subsidiaries. In passing, I will also note that there are special rules dealing with interlocks involving banks and other kinds of financial institutions. Another statute called the Depository Institutions Management Interlock Act comes into play then. One final question. What is the practical result when an illegal interlock is found to exist? The traditional remedy has been resignations that eliminate one side of the interlock. Thanks, Joe. I'll conclude by encouraging PE funds to make Section 8 a part of their annual compliance program. The obligations under Section 8 can be affected by, among other things, changes in the operations of interlock companies, which can affect the application of the de minimis exceptions Joe just talked about, and changes in the board memberships of executives and board members. And the DOJ's recent enforcement efforts may in particular be a good reason for PE firms to review their compliance with Section 8 at this time. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com.